Good evening. Uh, welcome, everybody, to uh, the Sheldonian Theatre on a beautiful autumn evening in Oxford. Uh, my name is Mike Waldridge. I'm the head of Department of Computer Science, and it's my pleasure uh, this evening to host our Michaelmas term uh, Straight You Lecture, which is our distinguished lecture series. Uh, before I do that, though, uh, I should point out the Straight You Lectures are a celebration. They're a celebration of science, sometimes obscure science, sometimes somewhat more accessible science, but we have another reason for celebration today. Uh, some of you may have seen in the press last week uh, that we were delighted to be able to welcome back to Oxford as a member of the Department of Computer Science and as a fellow at Christchurch College, Sir Tim Berners-Lee, who, as you will all know, is uh, the inventor of the World Wide Web. Uh, Tim is actually with us in the audience tonight with his, uh, with his wife, Rosemary, and Tim, Rosemary, you are most welcome back to Oxford. So on to this evening's business. Um, our lecturer this evening is Andrew Hodges. And I asked Andrew to give me some short biographical details, and this is what he, he told me to tell you. He's a senior research fellow in the Mathematical Institute. He's been a long-term fellow and tutor in mathematics at Wadham College. Uh, his research work was in mathematical physics, I think twister theory, uh, under the supervision of Roger Penrose, with whom he has a, a close relationship to the present day. Uh, he was given an honorary Doctor of Science at the University of Edinburgh uh, in June last year. And he also tells me uh, that he appeared on stage with the Pet Shop Boys in the Albert Hall in July 2014. In all other respects, uh, a, 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 a distinguished but uh, in some sense unremarkable career for an Oxford Don, the kind of career that you would expect an Oxford Don uh, to have. Um, but the reason that Andrew's here tonight is that in the late 1970s and early 1980s, he did something truly remarkable. Um, he wrote a book, and uh, this is it. This is my copy of it. I've treasured this book for 30 years, and I've just, Andrew's, I've just shown it to Andrew, and he's told me this was a particularly poor edition of the book and very bad value for money. But nevertheless, I did treasure it. I actually wrote rather quaintly. I wrote the date inside, May 1985, I bought this copy of the book. The binding has not lasted as well as the words inside it. Uh, and the book is the story of Alan Turing. And what's important to remember is that before this book appeared, Turing's name was completely unknown outside computer science. And the remarkable things that he did in his life were completely unknown outside the field of computer science and, and, and mathematics. Uh, I read a review of this book and was moved to order it from my bookshop. The town of Hereford, where I grew up, didn't stock this kind of book in the mid-1980s, so I had to order it. Uh, and it made a tremendous and lasting impression on me. And indeed, it's one of those books, as I say, that I've treasured throughout my life. So why did it make such a lasting impression on me? Well, firstly, it is a fantastic book. Uh, it is ranked as one of the greatest scientific biographies of all time. I'm assuming you're all, you've all read it. If you haven't read it, you should do so. It is your duty to do so. Uh, you will have the opportunity, in fact, to get copies of it, and Andrew's indicated he'd be happy to sign copies afterwards. But it is a great scientific biography, and rarely do scientific biographies get under the skin of the science and the thinking that led to scientific innovation. So that's the first reason uh, that it's remarkable. Um, the second reason it's remarkable uh, is, as I say, that it gave the world the Turing story for the first time. Before this book, there was no Turing story. Um, and when I read the story, I'd never heard of, of, of Turing's life, and I was shocked and appalled uh, at what happened to Turing in the later stage of his life. And uh, I was always brought up to think that this country was on the right side of history, that basically we were decent people who did the right thing. And I was astonished to discover the kinds of things that happened in the 1950s in this country. And it opened my eyes. It gave me a burning sense of injustice and unfairness, and a sense of injustice and unfairness that stayed, stayed with me ever since. So uh, the arc of human history tends towards justice, we are told. Well, if it does so, then from time to time it needs some very big signposts along the way to point it in the right direction. The Turing story, I think, is exactly such a signpost. We read just the other week of, uh, in the press of the Alan Turing law, thousands of gay men to be pardoned. 
uh, if they were prosecuted for crimes uh, that are now uh, no longer regarded as crimes, whatever one might think of that, whether it's a token gesture and so on, at least it suggests that our thinking as society is heading in the right direction. I don't believe, I, I believe, sorry, that the, the Turing story is actually an important part of that, uh, 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 of that trajectory. Uh, it was Andrew that gave us that story. We wouldn't have it in the form that we have it today. And Andrew, it's really all due to the work that you did in that book. So I'm very, very pleased to welcome you to give this evening's straight to lecture. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for that. I'm not sure I can follow that very easily, and I think you've, you've done a spoiler. I think you've given away the ending. Uh, I will be talking a little bit uh, at the end, in fact, more than I usually do, about the events at the end of Alan Turing's life, because I think there is a, a need for that, especially when it's been in the news so much in, in the recent period. But I'm going to try and give an overview of his whole scientific life uh, before I get to that. And also, I should remember, while welcoming you, that I'm being watched by people who see this as a podcast, and the podcast people may not know that we're in the wonderful setting of the Sheldonian Theatre, and that this goes back to the scientific revolution of the 1660s. And I'd like you to see Alan Turing, who lived from 1912 to 1954, as, as, uh, as in that great stream of life, drawing on the past and reaching into our own present and future. Turing didn't have a strong personal connection with us here in Oxford, but he did have a link with Christopher Strachey, who became the founding figure of computer science here, and whose name is remembered, of course, in this lecture series. Some people here may also have known Robin Gandhi, major Oxford figure in mathematical logic. He was Turing's close friend and first student. And there are many more threads in this great intellectual web linking past and present. Some of these are brought out in a recent book, not my book, but another book called The Once and Future Turing, with contributions from leading people in a whole number of fields that Turing touched. One of these, uh, Professor Scott Aronson, was a Christopher Strachey lecturer last year, and I'm very honored that this talk is a successor to his. It's my pleasure that other contributors, Sir Roger Penrose and Dr. Tom Willey, representing the Mathematical Biology Group here at Oxford, are also here, along with such fantastically distinguished guests as Michael has, has mentioned. Now, of all these many threads, of course, the central one is the emergence of digital technology and the dominating role of the electronic computer. And, of course, even just the podcasting of this talk or the projection onto this screen, something that we now take for granted, depends on it. And all this leads me to choose a starting point for the story, which is not the obvious one, not the beginning where we usually begin, and not the end, although it's extremely interesting, uh, but a point in the middle, 1951, because that's when Christopher Strachey met Turing at the early Manchester Computer Laboratory. 1951 was the end of the post-war period. It was the Festival of Britain. It was a start-up for modernism and the flashing lights of those first computers uh, amidst a very old-fashioned, class-bound Britain was, uh, was an inspiring aspect of it. I think Christopher Strachey saw this very clearly, and while a maths master at Harrow School, he wrote to Turing about many ideas, including developing higher-level languages, and you won't be able to read his typescript, but there are two words in there, program and utopian. And his idea was a program to write programs at a lower level, then a utopian idea, but something which advanced people like him were seeing was possible and indeed, of course, came about. After further contact, Strachey arrived in Manchester with an advanced program to try out on their computer. To everyone's amazement, it worked perfectly at the first attempt, never been seen before, and then gave a rendition of God Save the King. That was the first that was the start of serious operating systems, but also of computer-based media. The Manchester computer played jingle bells to the nation on the radio at Christmas 1951. And you may have seen recently that an audio recording of uh, the Manchester computer's tune playing has been recovered. Strachey's love letter programs, uh, which are generated syntactically correct random sentences, also got into the media 
and served to give a quite new public picture of what computers could be all about. Uh, right, as Michael mentioned, there'll be a day marking Christopher Strachey's centenary next month, so I don't need to say more about him, but I will just say that his drafts playing programs complemented the chess playing that Turing had already started and gave a first stab at machine intelligence. All of these exercises, though, this is what I want to emphasize, illustrated Turing's concept of the computer as a universal machine. That was something that was by no means familiar in 1951, and it pushed out the boundaries of what could be expected of computers. Now, Turing's situation at Manchester, I mean, why was he there? What was he doing? Well, it came about because of having had that idea of a universal machine back in 1936. In fact, the Manchester computer, as working in 1948, had been the world's first practical embodiment of his idea. So what we'll do now is we'll go back to that pre-war, pre-computer world and see how the computer came into being, taking Alan Turing's story along with it. So back to 1936, uh, Alan Turing at, at Cambridge, and specifically a fellow of King's College, Cambridge. He, he was not a university lecturer, and he was just 24. Now, he would have been seen as a pure mathematician in Cambridge of the 30s, but in fact, he was in no way restricted by such uh, Cambridge compartments. Uh, as a student in 1932, for instance, he was reading John von Neumann's new mathematical foundations of quantum mechanics. Uh, more precisely, of course, he was reading the original German, uh, and you should remember that until Hitler took over and wrecked everything, Germany was still the scientific world center. Turing's early work largely derived from that German-speaking mathematical world. I mean, he was hiking in Germany several times as well. And the greatest thing was his following up of Kurt Gödel's revolutionary work of 1931, which showed up the incompleteness of axiomatic systems. He did this after attending the 1935 Cambridge Lectures on Mathematical Logic by Max Newman. Turing's now very famous work defining computability was essentially complete in 1936, and this is the title page of it here, uh, a title which would have been completely incomprehensible to almost everyone in the world, not helped by having a very long German word in the middle of it, uh, this was not how to make a career, really, but uh, it's, uh, this is what he did. The Entscheidungsproblem, the decision problem of Hilbert, uh, is the German word, and it's curiosity that the very word application comes in the title. I mean, it's that curiosity because an application now means a computer program. It's the word people use. And this paper actually effectively defined such programs. They are what came to be called Turing machines. A universal machine can play any program and so corresponds to a modern computer of a kind which then didn't exist. So I'll just point to some words in that, like uh, application. Here on another page, the word, the universal computing machine comes into the picture and these interesting words, it is possible to invent a single machine which can be used, I mean, to do, to do any application. And uh, universal machines are now carried in your hand and pass at a click from one application to another. But we should note that actually the, ap the application Turing was talking about in this work was not an app. It, the whole point was it's not a program. His proof showed that there could no, be no program that would solve the decision problem that Hilbert had defined, a problem which in effect requires the understanding of all of mathematics. And this is one reason why this deep paper is not just about techniques of computing, but has a much greater significance, the absolute limitations of the computable. On another page, very, a mathematical joke, uh, very typical of Turing. He's talking about, well, you might imagine doing mathematics, and at a certain point, you'd arrive at theorem number 157767334434477. Uh, that is a mathematical joke, if you like, but actually, of course, Thinking in those terms gets him into the mental framework of a programmer. You ha a programmer of, of the computer has to allow for that, that such things may have to be, you have to think of the computer, how the computer will read the data and, and, do, and do so in a systematic way. So he invented in this paper the whole mentality of computer programming. And of course, it didn't come out of nowhere, it came out of the rigor of mathematical foundations. On another page, you see it was not just the mind of the programmer he was thinking, 
but we see these words state of mind come out. There's an analysis here of the action of the human mind and what it is that a person is doing when they're computing. This meant going outside mathematics. I mean, it's way outside the box. It's not what maths people were really supposed to be doing. And there's a question here, where did it come from? What were the origins of this? Well, here it's, we're in the Dark Ages. I mean, it's like the once and future King Arthur. There's very, very little written evidence. There are no precursor papers and no notes. We do just know of his earlier fascination with the question of mind and matter, which had taken him first to uh, Jean von Neumann's quantum mechanics in 1932 and then into the foundations of mathematics. A few more things about that, about that history. The topologist Max Newman's lectures of 1935 were the key stimulus, but there's been new work on the remarkable background to Max Newman's own interest, showing how exceptional it was, not at all the Cambridge mainstream. There's also new work which, gives, which shows Turing's serious interest in a different but related problem, that of characterizing random real numbers. He had a friend, David Champenard, who was in the same maths year at King's, who published while an undergraduate in 1933 the observation that a certain rather curious real number has some provably random characteristics in base 10. Turing took this up and is now seen to have gone a long way with generalizing it, although he never published anything. It was in that same 1936 period. So there's another ingredient which might explain Turing's very individual formulation of Hilbert's problem in terms of computing numbers. Well, I'm not really explaining that. I'm, what I want to say is that there was a very wide range of inputs to Turing's thought, wide in mathematics and in sciences and in philosophy, but it was not to do with the actual calculation of numerical problems. In this very abstract context, the universal machine arises like a, a byproduct, is on the side, and yet he certainly appreciated and discussed with his friend David Champenown this very striking property of his invention, a single machine that could do anything. He was very right to look very pleased in this, uh, in the, uh, in this passport photo, which unfortunately I've got missed out, but uh, never mind, we'll, we'll come to a nicer one of him here, uh, showing him at Princeton, which was what the passport was for. He went off to Princeton, which since 1933 was the New World Scientific Center in effect, and arrived there in, in 1936. So that's, uh, we have a snapshot of Alan Turing caught in a seminar at Princeton. Uh, it's uh, not a, a selfie, but it, it looks a bit like that. And notably, he's a little bit at the edge of the picture, which is, I think is about the correct place. He was not, he didn't put himself forward as a central person. He was someone who was always a little bit on the edge of the group. He's also looking remarkably smart, actually. I mean, the graduate students don't um, wear ties nowadays, and nor did he, usually, so I'm not quite sure why he was looking quite as, uh, as brushed up. What he was doing there was uh, as a PhD on ordinal logics, supervised by the American logician Alonzo Church, and that's, I mean, a source of a huge amount of post-war thinking about the nature of the uncomputable. It's nothing to do with practical computing. Uh, <clears throat> But on the side, he certainly was interested in implementing computing. You couldn't have built a universal Turing machine with 1936 technology, but you, he applied his interest in implementation to smaller projects. Very unusual, again, for someone who's supposed to be a pure mathematician. Got his hands dirty with it. And this, in particular, he had a machine for computing uh, the Riemann zeta function on the critical line using a Fourier series, and that was pursued further in 1939. And the point of this uh, document here is it shows an interesting figure of 40 pounds, which he got from the Royal Society for this. I think that's the only really successful grant application he made. I don't think he was a model for research proposals, for, modern, for a role model for modern um, students or, or postdocs, but uh, anyway, he, he managed. And another machine he got no support for at all, it was absolutely his own thing, and this was a cipher machine. A cipher machine, we don't know quite what it was, but it was electromechanical, and that raises another very interesting question. How did he get into the world of codes and ciphers? 
Well, his idea in 1937 there at Princeton was an idea which would have to do with beating Germany if war came, so he said. Also, he said, it arose as a byproduct of thinking about abstract computability. In fact, he said that even back in 1936, right away. Now, this scheme was put to the British government in the summer of 1938. So this was the beginning of a very big, big story. Uh, he was pushing as an open door for two reasons. First uh, is that GCCS, as it then was, and I'll, I'll call it GCHQ because that's the same thing now, was actively recruiting mathematicians for the first time. And secondly, what you might call the liberal elite uh, was at work for him, uh, a seamless interface between King's College and government. Uh, John Maynard Keynes, the economist, you, you can't get more liberal elite than that, uh, was uh, in charge at, at uh, a very powerful figure at King's College. He was very familiar with Turing and with a department that had broken the codes in the First World War when actually Christopher Strachey's father, Oliver, was uh, one of the World War I codebreakers. In 1938, uh, a contemporary of, of Oliver Strachey's, Dilwyn Knox, was, this, was one of the senior people in the department. He was a personal friend and indeed uh, ex-lover of Kenz's. Other King's fellows were joined there as well. So it, it was an easy transition for Turing to take, no mystery at all. But their main problem was the famous Enigma machine. <clears throat> and uh, I'll say a little bit about this, but not how it works. I'm not going to go on about how the rotors were and everything. But one thing I will say is often called this uh, Nazi Enigma machine. Actually, it wasn't Nazi at all. Ironically, it was one of the few things the Nazis retained and trusted from the Weimar Republic. They didn't change it from the uh, adaptation that was made in 1931. European science, the whole level of it, was much better represented by the Polish mathematicians who did work on breaking this machine and, uh, and arrived at mechanical methods for, uh, for doing so. In July 1939, they gave vital revelations to the British and French who were behind on this, and the ball started rolling very quickly. War was declared on the 3rd of September, 1939, and uh, Turing started at Bletchley Park, the new wartime headquarters, the next day. He'd actually, he wasn't new, it wasn't a new place to him. He'd visited it a year earlier when the organization surveyed it for suitability. I mean, he was already one of the team, but other mathematicians, particularly Gordon Welchman, an algebraic geometer, joined up at this point as well. It was a very senior common room sort of atmosphere, and uh, Alan Turing wrote a letter back to King's about Dilwyn Knox being his boss, a sort of SER joke, that really, and uh, it wasn't a boss type of relationship, but uh, that was, uh, that's where they were at Bletchley. In fact, you can see the buildings where they worked, and the left-hand one, the cottage in the stable yard is still there now. And in fact, it's, this is an opportunity to say how much there is to see, uh, both preserved and displayed at the Bletchley Park uh, Museum. <coughs> uh, and the other building is the pub where he lived. <coughs> now, I want to draw attention to the text here, which has an extremely important date of uh, 1st of November, 1939. Turing and Welchman, I mean, it's, it's so early, I mean, it's just a few weeks into the war, and Turing and Welchman had immediately had their way as mathematicians, and an extraordinary new building, a machine was already under construction. Here, in this text, uh, the, it's actually described as uh, a, uh, a super bomb machine, uh, which is a great name for it, they didn't keep it, but it was a good name for it, because it was far larger than the bomb of the Poles, uh, and uh, uh, that was essentially Turing's idea, though Welchman had an extremely important part in it uh, later on for improving it. Uh, some people may know something about this, I won't try and explain how it worked, but from a computer point of view, it's important to see that it was absolutely not a computer, it was an algorithm, it embodied an algorithm. It has nothing to do with universality at all. Now it would be an app. Uh, and it did something which was comparable with solving tens of thousands of Sudoku puzzles uh, in, in real very, very quickly, in, in many times a second. 
which was pretty amazing thing to be able to do in 1939 technology. And that was the brilliance of Turing's, both his logic and his experience with some machine building to see that this could be done, but done so quickly. Uh, the first one was built at Letchworth uh, over the winter of 1939-40, and it was working in March 1940 before Churchill became prime minister, which a lot of people don't appreciate. Uh, this was all a triumph of the Neville Chamberlain regime. <clears throat> uh, it was called Victory, uh, but Victory would have seemed very far off at that point. Uh, here's a picture of it, and underneath the picture of it is a little sketch of that Turing's own writing for explaining the uh, sequence of logical deductions that makes it work. Now, that wasn't enough. It had to be surrounded by a host of other methods and, uh, uh, and, and special uh, algorithms. Uh, and uh, the naval enigma messages were the, much the hardest to deal with, also the most vital. Uh, Turing took that on really against the odds, and that was his most individual contribution. He wrote up uh, the Bayesian probability theory, which he developed for this, and that's a little segment of it. This paper, incidentally, was only released by GCHQ in 2012. Uh, I, I don't know why, but it was kept back for a very long time. Uh, well, you can see things about, um, yeah, log odds he liked, and you can see lots of 26s which have to do with alphabets. Uh, this theory was his, probably the deepest contribution. It wasn't just to do with Enigma, it was used for all sorts of different other cipher purposes, and so it went into the purposes for which the famous electronic colossus was used later in the war, and its concept of weight of evidence was essentially equivalent to Shannon's measure of information. The story after 1941 was very much dominated by the industrial scale of the war, so over 200 of these machines were built eventually, and this went well beyond the power of British industry to, to cope. And the Churchillian part of it, really, uh, not the starting off part, but the continuing sustained part of it, of course, meant giving way to the United States, but trying to retain some British influence. That was part of Turing's role, very important. Uh, from November 1942 to March 1943, he went on a solo top-level technical liaison in the United States, setting up the basis for what is now really the NSA-GCHQ relationship, a very tricky diplomatic mission. Uh, you will see on these, uh, I mean, he went to various places, Washington and Dayton, Ohio, where the new machines were being built by the Americans, and to New York, uh, where the Roosevelt-Churchill uh, radio link was being built at Bell Laboratories. Speech encipherment was specially secret, and the United States demanded that he keep things secret from the other Brits when he got back. Yeah, but he ran into a lot of problems here. If you can see the stories here, he was kept on Ellis Island because he didn't have the right papers. He was told that he was going to have access, and then it was withdrawn and so forth. He took a very dim view of this. Uh, being messed up by security rules, and this was not his thing at all. I mean, he liked working with the people on the actual stuff, but this was, 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 was very annoying. Nevertheless, it introduced him, and this is the important thing for their future story, this is what introduced him to hands-on electronics. It was the speech encipherment question. This was the key to the future. This is how logic and electronics first came together. <clears throat> Well, he was able to work on that when he got back to Bletchley because Hugh Alexander, his deputy, um, had taken over the naval enigma section and Turing went off to a, a smaller place, Hanslope Park in North Buckinghamshire, where he had a little laboratory. And there, the, with one assistant, Donald Bailey, he built a, the, what's called the Delilah machine, which is this small-scale speech encipherment uh, 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 thing. I mean, not done for transatlantic communications, but more modest, but with a very good security. And this gave the exposure to some serious electronics with his own hands, uh, and it was also effectively practice for what, at some point, he must have decided was the thing to do, which was to realize the universal Turing machine idea in electronics with the speed and reliability of the cutting-edge digital electronics, which very few people but he knew about at that point. 
Again, we don't know. We don't, in the Dark Ages, again, there must have been a point where he saw he could do this, and we don't know when it was. But this is at, uh, at, at Hanslope Park is where all this emerged. Uh, von Neumann got in first in June 1945 with a plan for electronic computer, the EDVAC report, and that's generally regarded as the fountain origin of modern computing. And so Turing you know, missed that. Uh, but on the other hand, the American impetus gave the Brits very good reason to compete with the US, and in fact, everything went right at first. They looked at Turing and appointed him to uh, the National Physical Laboratory at Teddington in southwest London, and that's where he produced the first detailed computer prospectus, of which this is one page here, not an illuminating page at all. I mean, it's uh, just to illustrate that it was done in detail and all aspects of the computer from its use and its rationale to uh, the detailed uh, construction. Had a striking list of examples of diverse applications, including a suggestion for artificial intelligence, something he would become very keen on actually in the course of the war and probably stimulated by the fact that algorithmic methods as they'd used in the code breaking had been so incredibly successful. He, uh, <coughs> Uh, it was actually, it, it was mentioned in the press as being the bright young fellow who was doing this thing for the new, new British triumph. Uh, he was probably more in the press for his amateur athletics because he was very keen on long distance running at the same time. These two things actually came together in, uh, in Boxing Day 1946. The sports reporter of the Evening News asked him about the electronic brain. Was it his idea? And uh, Turing said, well, the Americans had done the donkey work on it, uh, a somewhat ambivalent tribute, and I think the only time he ever really commented on the big question of priority, which was still engages a lot of people now. On the whole, he didn't care very much about that. He always mentioned the, the 1936 origin of the ideas, but he never pressed the sense in which there'd been a line of development into computer, uh, electronic computer, or certainly not his leading part of it. Well, a cut-down uh, version of the automatic computing engine, as it was called, was in fact completed in 1950, and Christopher Strachey's first programming in 1951 was for it. But by that time, impatient with the NPL, Turing had moved to Manchester. He started there in October 1948, after that June 1948 working of a tiny prototype demonstrating his principle of the stored program, and that is the... Uh, there's the early first working Manchester computer, which uh, again you <coughs> is a very important moment. It wasn't Turing's moment. I mean, Turing, on the whole, doesn't get as much credit as he should, I think, or the ACE doesn't get as much attention as it should as being a, one of the first uh, computers. Uh, but Turing's connection with the Manchester computer tends to be overstated. I mean, he, you might even have read that he built it or something like that. It, he didn't. He didn't even design it. What is important is that he and Newman told the electric engineers what a computer was. It was the whole idea of a stored program embodying the universal machine idea. The uh, media had caught on very quickly to the prospect of computers. There were a lot of talk about electronic brains rivaling human capacities right back in the 1946, 47, 48 period. And Turing rose to this, and in, for instance, in 1949, interviewed by the Times, uh, he, read, he just said, oh, we're finding out if the machine could think for itself. This was not at all the line that was uh, approved of by, by Manchester University. Uh, I think nowadays they'd be very glad of that sort of press release coverage, but in those days that was thought uh, not the thing. But it led to much stimulating interdisciplinary and philosophical discussions at Manchester. And it was out of that that his most celebrated paper on artificial intelligence, the paper in the philosophical journal Mind of October 1950, called Computing Machinery and Intelligence, uh, that uh, came out of these discussions. And of course, if you've seen it, you'll know that it's written to attract a wide number of people. It's not, it's not just for experts. It's full of cultural references, mildly risque jokes, including the imitation game or Turing test, uh, introduced as a parlor game with ludicrous text message conversations. 
But behind it is a serious question of how to give an objective characterization of intelligence. Uh, and there's much more in it too, although it's most famous for that test idea. It has this great content of exhibiting the new model of computability, the idea of a universal machine, and even the bit about the relationship of computability to physical law, which is a question which he just started to, to get going on. Also, constructive ideas for artificial intelligence, both neural networks and top-down programming. He said both should be tried and famously gave a cautious 50-year prophecy. But also, it has this subtext about Alan Turing which is saying, I am human. Uh, I, I know what real intelligence and real life involves. That made him an attractive character and speaker, and that brings us back to 1951, where we started. He was asked to give a third program radio talk, uh, despite not being a very fluent speaker. Um, and uh, in fact, you'll see the BBC producer's report did credit they had a lively mind, the BBC thought, but he did have this hesitation in his speech. <clears throat> I didn't make him a media guru immediately, but uh, nevertheless, he was on the radio, and it was that radio talk in May 1951 that Christopher Strachey heard, and that's what got his career going by writing off to Turing at Manchester and uh, with the drafts playing and love letters, all of that. So that's how, in 1951, Turing was established in Manchester. It's a very minor public figure, he was also elected Fellow of the Royal Society in 1951, and it was for that 1936 work. Uh, two characteristic stories. He said, I suppose they couldn't have made me an FRS when I was 24, which is rather bragging. But on the other hand, he wasn't really like that. Uh, a young research student rather tactlessly said to him, oh, I didn't think of you as an FRS. And he just laughed at that. He didn't mind. Um, he, he, he was someone... He, he had this lower upper middle class accent, of course, and the Cambridge Don background, but he still rather had this air of a graduate student, and uh, he, he didn't have side, as people said. He was very accessible to people on the right wavelength. That uh, fully engineered Manchester computer was inaugurated in that same year, July 1951, and uh, it uh, was somewhat... Uh, the, the organization was nothing like what had been envisaged originally by Newman. It was dominated by the fact that the government had supplied money for the atomic bomb calculation uh, to be run on it. That's what it was for. Uh, and Turing's role wasn't really terribly clear. Uh, but on the other hand, he had a lot of freedom in using it, especially at night. So he'd almost got a private or personal computer where there are only three or four in the world. <clears throat> Now, one can see, and there he is at the, at the console of the new machine on the right there. Now, you can see all the things that he might have done there or didn't do. Could have promoted Turing machines, theory of computation, started complexity theory, higher programming, conferences, books, all sorts of things. Well, none of that happened. He didn't do that. The future, of course, really lay in software architecture rather than this hardware building. But it was Christopher Strachey who followed that line of thought into the future. Turing himself left it to others. So that brings to the question now, having got this odd state, uh, what did he do with it? What do you do next? Well, I'll tell you one thing he did next. He went on running, and uh, he had a new running partner in around Cheshire villages where he lived. This was the 17-year-old Alan Garner later famous as the author of The Owl Service and other iconic fiction, but at that stage uh, in the Manchester Grammar School um, sixth form. Schoolboy, and that's uh, uh, it's a very curious fact, which if I have time, we'll, we will come back to. But he was also doing completely new work, and we have very little idea of what the precursors to this was, and it came out of the blue, and it was his mathematical theory of biological growth and form, based on reaction and diffusion in physical chemistry. Uh, it was certainly going strong in, in February 1951, and it has had some possible connection with his interest in the question of brain growth, itself an outcome of his interest in intelligence and learning processes, but I think it was much deeper than that. It went back to physical chemistry he'd done at school or even, even earlier. Anyway, it's classical applied maths, it's not a business of the discrete 
uh, like in, in uh, networks, it's actually classical analog and continuous mathematics, but the computer comes in crucially because the equations that he wrote down cannot be solved analytically, and the computer gave the prospect of pure scientific research that would never have been possible before. So his first paper on the chemical basis of morphogenesis was submitted in November of that important year, 1951, and it has become one of the most cited in mathematical literature and a founding work in mathematical biology. But I'm going to skip a description of his theory, even though he had a delightful model for the processes of reaction and diffusion in an island of missionaries and cannibals, uh, a very typical way to illustrate uh, ideas. I'm going to go straight and quote something very important about the unpublished work that Turing did after finishing this paper. And this is by Professor Jonathan Dawes, uh, building on earlier work, especially that of Jonathan Swinton, who have looked at the very difficult pile of manuscripts that Turing left. He's gone much further in piecing together some of the disordered pages. And one of his conclusions is that, well, I put it here, and uh, this essential point is that the work that Turing was doing throughout the two years from 1952 to 54 were new ideas in applied mathematics that would have had substantial influence across the whole subject. They would have spurred the development of parts of the subject that otherwise took several decades to be realized. Uh, in particular, Turing arrived at an equation for a model that otherwise only arrived at in 1977. Uh, his ideas are relevant not only to biology, but to nonlinear dynamics, for instance, in the Novia-Stokes equations for fluids. Uh, this was miles ahead and the Manchester computer, of course, had none of the fast visual graphic displays that we now enjoy. So this was the kind of graphic display he had. It was a printout in which he'd do his own colored drawings uh, based on the, on the printout. I mean, you can just see from the picture that uh, he, uh, he, he should have been living at, at least 1984, not 54. I mean, he was miles, miles ahead. He did other things in the 53-54 period. Uh, there was work in, in number theory, and he showed himself really up with ideas in quantum mechanics and relativity. And everything was going really well in that his university position was on a more solid footing. He had a small research group going, and so you could imagine him as being an absolute leading figure of the 1960s with the new universities if he'd wanted to. I mean, that's the kind of position he was in. But on the morning of June the 8th, 1954, he was found dead in his bed. It was cyanide poisoning. The setting was a strange one of electroplating experiments in the next room and bedside slices of apple. The cyanide, his organs were full of the cyanide and uh, he died the evening before and it was assumed, I think perfectly correctly, that he had eaten a poisoned apple. Now, why? And that uh, gives little attention to this question. Of course, it's all connected with his being homosexual when all male same-sex relations were illegal. He was arrested on the day, well, it was the day George VI died, and he underwent criminal trial on 31st of March, 1952. Well, I want to give some picture of his identity as a gay man. You have to go back, because he's not an axiomatic system. You have to think of him as a real person now. I mean, he's Alan now, I think, to me. Uh, and he himself was certainly, I mean, I want to draw a sort of parallel with his scientific life in that uh, it starts off immersed in very old-fashioned class and privileged questions, becomes very modernized in such a way that, as Michael introduced him uh, to us this evening, our legislation, our culture is now involves his story in quite an essential way. So let's go back and, and see what, a, what he was like. Well, I'm going to give you a nice picture of what he was like. Uh, at school, as in 19, uh, at 19, these are pictures from 1931, uh, you can see he was into selfie. He anticipated the selfie. You can certainly see that. And you can see that he would have had no problem with surfing the internet at all if he'd, if he'd survived. But uh, the thing is, these are, he had a, you can see his physical look. Uh, I mean, swimming, running, cycling, hiking, boating, these were his things. And this scruffy look that everyone moaned about all the time in the, in the 40s and 50s, this was him too. 
Uh, he was just too early for the jeans and T-shirt of the 1960s, in which he would have been perfectly happy and acceptable. Uh, that was what he was like, and he retained all that outdoor and, and uh, that, that, this sort of physical look. That's what he, he was like. Uh, there's a well-known story that uh, uh, move on here. Yeah, there's a well-known story that he was uh, at school. He worshipped from afar, slightly older. Uh, boy called Christopher Morecambe. In fact, the nearest he got to uh, friendship really was going on a group to Cambridge for the scholarship exams when they went together in December 1929. Christopher then died very suddenly after this and it had a great impact on Alan Turing, something which I must say he was very open about. This was something he discussed, his, his feelings and his, his, uh, the, the thoughts that it evoked. Uh, in particular, he was actually much closer to another boy called Victor Butel uh, and uh, that helped him get over the crisis in, in 1932. Another important aspect of this was going to King's College. He was lucky that he got into his second choice college, if you like, because that was the liberal gay enclave with the uh, Maynard Kens and a number of other people. It was the liberal establishment. And he formed new friends there, one of them being David Champenown, who I mentioned, who remained a lifelong French, very understanding person, and indeed a sexual relationship with one of the other math students, uh, James Atkins. He had a lot of support. For someone in the 1930s, he really had a lot, but he was not at ease with himself at all. Uh, usual things, unrequited passion, loneliness, why me, why has this happened? All those thoughts, I think, uh, uh, very much it could depress him in that period. Uh, uh, one of those friends was the King's classicist Fred Clayton, uh, who had been in Germany in 1937, and they'd sponsored two Jewish boys who came as refugees in early 1939. And uh, they helped them out, and there's a striking picture here in the last week of peace, uh, the last week of August 1939, where they took them boating. It's Alan at the front and Fred at the back and the two boys in between. Uh, and... I'm, yeah, so Alan went off to war immediately after that, and it would seem to me that actually the elder of those two boys was probably the person most on his mind emotionally, I mean, purely emotionally, I mean, there's no, no physical contact. And I think it may well be that this was, he didn't saw this was not a, a good direction to be going in, and this is one reason why in spring 1941, he made a marriage proposal to Joan Clark, who was on the right there. Uh, she was Gordon Welchman's fourth year math student at Newnham College and sister of a King's College fellow. So one of the, of the group. She, uh, and uh, she joined Alan Turing's section on Naval Enigma in, uh, in June 1940. She, I mean, she was a real kindred spirit and uh, someone that Alan said he could talk to as a man, but she wasn't. And it was essentially doomed especially as he started immediately on the engagement with a talk about his homosexual tendencies. Joan knew this was not really going to go somewhere. It ended in August 1941 uh, in Wales when they had a week off and perhaps there was more opportunity for physical contact. Anyway, it was impossible to go on. Uh, the, uh, and Alan used a literary reference when he called it off. He quoted Oscar Wilde. Uh, for each man kills the thing he loves, and so on. It's from the Ballad of Reading Jail. So just to survey his life, this is very, uh, a very difficult period. It was not something that we found very fulfilling. He became much more confident in the later part of the war and in after the war. Uh, one reason seems to be he discovered, I think, while in the United States on that liaison trip, and then possibly in Paris when going to, on the way to Germany to to, uh, to, to see the German communications equipment, uh, the possibility of casual pickups. Uh, anyway, back in King's College, Cambridge, in 1948, he was much more confident. That was when he came out and made friends on a new level with Robin Gandhi, uh, but also made new friends, one of whom became a longer-term lover, uh, Neville Johnson, his name was, a boy from Newcastle. He was 24 then, after coming out of service. Uh, they went cycling in France in 1948, just the kind of thing that had the best chance of setting, settling into a continuing relationship. 
But that was really bedeviled by the long-distance problem, which affects so many people. Alan Turing moved to Manchester, and Neville had his job in Reading, and it was difficult to keep going. Meanwhile, in Manchester, temptation lurked because uh, by the university, there was this unique area, unique in the north of England anyway, of this uh, sort of gay-identified cruising block, and Alan Turing could be seen there after 1950 or so. So that brings us to that fateful year, 1951. That was when he decided, after submitting his paper, that uh, he had earned what he described as another gay man. It's interesting he used the word gay, which was then an American uh, usage. It wasn't really the British usage, but there it is in, in his writing. And he did. He met this young photo printer called Arnold Murray and took a shine to him. His chat-up line was that he worked on the electronic brain, and uh, the electronic brain got everywhere. And uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, Alan, uh, Arnold was not a very suitable boy, and uh, it, after a, some petty theft, uh, Turing had to go to the police on the grounds that he was subject to an implicit kind of blackmail. He didn't handle it very well, and the police soon came to arrest him. In fact, both of them were charged in exactly the same way under the 1885 Act, the same one as, uh, as Oscar Wilde had been prosecuted under. The uh, a new Conservative government was leading quite a crackdown at this point, and this was part of what was a very large-scale thing that was happening. Uh, public opinion was entirely in favour of the law as it was. There was virtually no opposition to it. So Turing's response to being charged when he said, I thought there was a royal commission sitting to legalize it, well, there certainly wasn't, but the thing is that Turing said what the liberal elite may have thought, uh, but kept to themselves, and uh, that was his characteristic. It was very modern, and in 1952, quite shocking, and it did him no good at all. Uh, it's well known now that uh, the, what happened when he was uh, convicted was that he was on probation, having to take these hormone uh, injections uh, actually for a year. And that's, I suppose people think of that as being some very cruel thing that was devised. At the time, that would have been seen as the soft option. I mean, this, in fact, was, it was the modern, it was the scientific option. Uh, the irony of this, I'm sure everyone appreciates, but it did mean that he didn't lose his job as he would have done if he'd refused and gone to prison. And again, it's often thought that he declined thereafter and fell away and his mind was wrecked and originality left him by this dreadful assault uh, of the uh, uh, biochemistry. But there's really no evidence at all, and that's why I emphasized in this earlier uh, section that he was doing work of the greatest originality, stuff that was decades ahead, and that continued right up to the end. Uh, in fact, it's the other way around. I mean, he really stood up to this and insisted on continuing work of the highest quality. And his, his whole response to the crisis was very sophisticated. It had that same mixture of dead seriousness and humor as in the scientific writing. I had a very agreeable feeling of irresponsibility, he said of the trial, rather like being back at school. Um, it's a very upper middle class thing to say, for the, uh, but, uh, but slightly more modern existentialist way, he said, no doubt I shall emerge from it a different man, but quite who I've not found out. <laughs> he made quite a decisive step in this existential question by consulting a Jungian uh, psychotherapist, Franz Greenbaum, who was another refugee, Jewish refugee from Nazi Germany. And he was reading in modern literature, and he, indeed he was writing too because he wrote a short story about his experience, interestingly quite avant-garde in that he looked at how he himself would be seen by a working class young man. But the most positive thing of all was escape to Norway of all places. Uh, and uh, that's, sorry, that's the photograph at the bottom, which is from the Scandinavian, very early Scandinavian gay rights movement of 1952. It was their magazine, and that was exactly what he wanted. I mean, that was the idea was, was marvelous. And he zipped over to Norway in the summer of 1952, despite being on this treatment and the rest of it. <coughs> uh, and in fact, indeed, he was learning Danish and Norwegian with great enthusiasm. In uh, Bergen, he met a young man called Kjell, 
and you'll see Kiel theory and Kiel programs all over the morphogenesis work, and that's where it, where it comes from. He didn't divide his uh, life into, into compartments very well, and indeed he talks about all these events a great deal with people in the computing laboratory. Uh, well, now, he'd uh, lost Neville, Neville Johnson, the boyfriend from 48 to 1950 or so, because Neville's mother forced him never to see Alan again. I mean, she, was, uh, she had a point. I mean, he was dangerous to know. But one person who did become a lot closer was Nick Furbank uh, from King's College. P.N. Furbank, you could have seen his name. He is the biographer of E.M. Forster, and in fact a critic with many articles in the Times Literary Supplements and things like that until his recent death. Actually, the release of some papers from Nick Furbank gives us a little bit more explanation for Turing's frame of mind, which I'd like to share with you. Uh, it's clear now that for a time in late 52 and in 53, Alan Turing seriously entertained the thought that he would become bisexual. Like many people he knew were, or at least claimed to be, I mean, anyway, Maynard Kens comes to mind, certainly was. And his, think, his view of the psychotherapy was that a heterosexual side of him could emerge from the subconscious, if unblocked by Jung, Jungian analysis of his dreams. Indeed, he told Nick about a dream which he said proved that this was happening. Well, he was unusual, I think, as a gay man, as he was never denying his gay side at all. He was always very positive and open about who he was attracted by and the excitement of encounters, but it seemed that he hoped that he could feel heterosexual attraction as well, not as some kind of cover story, but as really authentic, and then settle down in marriage. I think very similar to what he'd hoped in 1941. And that, I think, is to explain something I'd always find found hard to understand is why on earth he chose Corfu for his summer 1953 holiday. He went to the Club Mediterranean, just started, and is really the vanguard of the new leisure 1950s, sunnier sort of Europe. I think he went there to see if in this liberated environment he could detect any new physical interest in, him, in the other sex, uh, in himself. In fact, he wrote to Nick before he went that he would be making love, the nationality and sex of the partner to be decided, perhaps not at all though, as it was something permanent that he wanted. And while he was there, this is a little vignette of Alan Turing in this top absolutely critical period, is the postcard that he sent to the psychiatrist, and it says, I'm here at Corfu, it is tremendously hot, and one wears bathing things all day. <clears throat> this is not the picture of the shattered person uh, is someone who is actually living life as much as they can. However, I doubt very much that this, came, this idea of bisexuality came to anything. He returned with a long list of Greek and French names and addresses. It seems that he did find some partners, and it would be astonishing if they were other than young men. Leopards don't shoot, uh, change their spots very easily, and this was just, I think, a dream of a genuine, stable, married state that could emerge for him, just as it had been in 1941. Uh, so I think that's an important element of his story, and we think about the relationship between the arrest and the, and the trial and his death two years later. There's a whole journey here. To treat him as a whole person means taking these things into account and not just having a very one-dimensional picture of, of of wound and damage and collapse. There was fighting back, there was very considerable uncertainty about what to do, but then there was something else that had to be, has to be taken into consideration as well. And that is his special status. When the police had arrested him, it was just a very ordinary arrest. They had no idea who he was, but he was someone special. He was the Anglo-American world's top crypto consultant. And uh, he, of course, his friends had no idea of this whatsoever. I mean, they had no idea what he'd done in the war. No one breathed a word about this until the 1970s. Additionally, since 1948, he'd done further work for GCHQ, which was, of course, abruptly stopped when he was arrested. He also had, if you remember, special United States clearance for what, in 1954, would have been an extremely sensitive topic, uh, speech incitement. And one said that what happened was the boy from Norway, Kel, uh, came over and, and landed at Newcastle intending to visit him. 
But uh, as Turing reported, half the police in the north of England seemed to be out looking for him, and they intercepted him and sent him back to Norway. The poor sweeties, he said, did not know that there was nothing but a kiss with this young man in Norway. Well, the poor sweeties uh, were not the local police. This, this was a national operation. And the, uh, the reason's obvious. His activities, with their potential for entrapment, were a real anxiety for national security. In 1954, it was clear policy to exclude homosexuals absolutely from GCHQ work. And the current director of GCHQ, Robert Hannigan, has recently confirmed that this was the case and remained the case until the 1990s. It's changed completely now. That was the point of his remark. Uh, this had started in 1948 under American influence, and it meant that Turing's situation was nothing like what it had been in the Second World War when being a good chap from the right school and the right college was absolutely all you needed. GCHQ could hardly have ignored their own security policy when their top scientific consultant revealed as the very thing they wanted to exclude at all costs. And not just that, it wasn't just that he was gay, he was involved with lowlife, he was stroppy, utterly unrepentant, and set on foreign travel to escape British law. It's really surprising that he was allowed to go abroad in the summer of 1953 and probably had to fight for permission. In fact, there's a big page of hints that he wrote to Robin Gandhi, in-joke hints about being stopped from, uh, from leaving the country, but Robin didn't get it. I think Turing's humor was sometimes too subtle. Anyway, it may be that uh, it was after this period that I think he seriously considered the, uh, the only existentialist way out of this, which is suicide. He, in March 1953, he announced that he put together a chemistry laboratory in his house. I mentioned that very offhand, but that had a real meaning. It was the means of his death if he chose to take it. It always had this melodramatic thing about chemistry. It goes right back to his school days, even joking with Christopher Morecambe about absolutely deadly substances. He had a slightly melodramatic and slightly morbid interest in, in, this, in this whole thing. Uh, in fact, we can see even in 1936, when he was so successful and everything was going so well, his mother knew there was something really wrong. And it turns out that she wrote behind his back to the dean of the graduate college in Princeton saying to watch out, uh, there might be some unforeseen emergency and they should know how to contact the Turing family if such a thing happened. Clearly she knew something, and this was classic interference, but she had a real point. In 1937, Alan Turing wrote to his King's College boyfriend, James Atkins, about having a suicide plan. Indeed, there was an event in 1937 which could very well have triggered such thoughts. And the plan, as James recalled to me, involved an apple and electrical wiring. And the point of the plan, to have a plan at all, was that it was to disguise suicide as an accident, as a chemical accident, an accident doing a chemistry experiment. And it was for the sake of his mother. I mean, right. So uh, other people uh, can confirm some of this. And so uh, he knew his mother well, and she did indeed fall for this exactly, and uh, believed that he had transferred the cyanide by accident from the experiment to his apple and ate it by mistake. Getting the cyanide was easy. He got it from the Manchester Chemistry Department. Very telling is that after March 1953, the same point, he was pressing Nick Furbank to be the executor of his will. This was a very special will, and it's clear from his letters to Nick, which were written in French, to cushion, I think, it was a very sensitive thing. It was using Nick's own interest in French literature, and he put it as something that might be necessary since trouble might come again. And uh, he put it in that way, and Nick agreed. The will itself was, was signed in February 1954. Very careful, totally unconventional. He cut his lawyer brother completely and divided his estate between the five most supportive people in his life, Nick, Robin, Neville, David Champenown, and his mother. <laughs> now, we don't know what happens. Uh, Robert Hennigan's recent statement from GCHQ says that they stood by him, and I'm sure that Hugh Alexander, his deputy in the war, and then the scientific head of GCHQ after the war, did stick up for him uh, very strongly. 
But from the point of view of security, an Alan Turing would have seemed criminally irresponsible if not certifiably insane. It would be very hard, very hard for you, Alexander, to argue that he did not need to be protected from himself. The Cold War was at its height in 1954. Opposite number, Robert Oppenheimer was effectively on trial. Turing's friends and contacts would give no cause for uh, complacency. They included numerous communists as well as atomic scientists. But the main thing was he knew what hardly anyone in the world knew, these very nature of Anglo-American communication, crypto and security as the biggest secret of the lot. In the circumstances, the amazing thing is not that he went, but that he lasted so long. He was a man who tried to be honest and truthful, which is what Newman said for him at the trial, but he was cursed with two things which went in the opposite direction and made everything a lie, the secrecy of the war work and the criminalization of his sexuality. The combination of them both in the security issue, issue was clearly absolutely toxic. It's hardly surprising that he was crushed. Well, I think I'll have to leave this story at this point and uh, invite you to see there are any other ramifications and extraordinary episodes which feed into this and very interesting people and a whole world of life and history uh, which, uh, uh, which is part of the human story and feed into this great web of science which I referred to at the beginning. Uh, it's a web in which he himself believed uh, an individual only contributes a little bit. It is essentially a communal operation, and that's something where he ceased, but what he did uh, lives on. Secondly, I should have done this at the beginning, but I should thank Oxford Asset Management. O Oxford Asset Management are our sponsors for these events. We couldn't, it isn't free to get a venue like this. Uh, uh, they, do, they do cost, and we couldn't do an event on this scale and complexity without their support, so we're tremendously grateful to them. You can find out more about Oxford Asset Management over there. You can find out more about the department and what we do over here. And finally, just a, a, a reminder, if you'd like to pick up a copy of the book, and Andrew indicated he'd, he'd be happy to sign copies, you're very, very welcome to over there. But uh, uh, one more time, Andrew, I've been waiting 31 years uh, to hear you give this lecture. You didn't disappoint. That was a fantastic straight to lecture. Thank you so much.